Hello, welcome back. This is Oro Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. So next weekend is the Feast of Christ the King, the last liturgical feast in the liturgical year. And then we start over again with the first week of Advent as we prepare for Christmas. You know, the idea of the liturgical year where you progress through the same feast year after year in some a very superficial way seems to reflect the idea of a cosmos that constantly repeats itself, the cycle of death and rebirth, which is characteristic of Eastern religions. But it's not what Christianity is. Christianity recognizes that we go through the same kinds of struggles that all the human beings before us have gone through, the human person is the human person. Whether they're doing the paintings in the caves in France, the caves of Lascaux, or whether or not it's child, your child doing art for your refrigerator, something different about the human person. And it's a trajectory that extends be, through history and beyond. So today I wanna to talk a little bit about a great book called The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton the end of the world, and what we ought to do about it. So stay tuned. Probably G.K. Chesterton's greatest book is The Everlasting Man, published in 1925. And it's a work of Christian apologetics, responding to H.G. Wells, if you remember the time machine. H.G. Wells was a science fiction reader and an atheist. But he had written a book called The Outline of History, and it's something you and I are familiar with. Uh, we evolved from animals. We're just another kind of animal. We just do what animals do, and we have the same fate as animals. We are insignificant because we're so small. But Chesterton very effectively points out why H.G. Wells so often is full of H.G. Wells. And so The Everlasting Man is a book that I've read and have just reread, and it reminds me of how brilliant G.K. Chesterton is. Ross Douthat, who is a, an author himself, a very fine writer, and he writes for the New York Times, uh, although he's not very in line with the New York Times, but he said about The Everlasting Man, Chesterton's somewhat loosey-goosey outline of history doubles as the best modern argument for Christianity I've ever read. You have to give in to the Chestertonian style, but if you do, be careful. You just might be converted, end quote. If you're looking for a good read, try The Everlasting Man. I'm going to give you some reasons why you ought to be interested in it before we turn to the scriptures and what we ought to do about it. You know, C.S. Lewis credits reading The Everlasting Man uh, with his conversion to theism. So for C.S. Lewis, he goes from being an atheist to a theist to being a Christian, and then one of the great Christian apolog uh, apologists. And he really is very uh, admiring of G.K. Chesterton. And so uh, <laughs> Lewis said, because he had a great sense of humor, like Chesterton had a great sense of humor, he said that a young man who wants to be an atheist cannot be too careful of what he reads. Why? Because it's about understanding history, understanding our lives. You know, the 
way that human culture presents itself in the archaeological and the historical record uh, gets bandied about between theists and atheists. And it's really how it is that you look at it. But Chesterton points out there are some inescapable facts that the atheists omit when they deal with history. But the Christians look at and recognize this says something remarkable about being a human being. So he goes to the Lascaux Caves. And if you remember, in those caves, they're really these very modern-looking drawings of, um, of bulls and other kinds of uh, animals that existed uh, thousands and thousands of years ago in Europe. And in this dark cave underground, these are where these primitive people went and did these amazing drawings, these figurative drawings of animals. He says, bulls and cow, bulls and deer and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, do not make drawings of human beings, but human beings make drawings of them. He could have talked about Blombo's cave, except Blombo's cave hadn't been discovered yet. I did a podcast on that. The How old those markings are, well over 100,000 years, and it's very clear that human beings are thinking in symbolic ways. Uh, and a symbolic way is you draw a symbol, and that symbol represents something in reality, but it's not dyadic, one thing to another, like their equivalents. It's about an idea of what this orange is. So symbolic thinking, it's the numbers, zero through nine and how uh, we organize reality through mathematics. Symbolic thinking is just the use of language. Uh, Walker Percy, great writer, um, talked about uh, triadic symbolism, that what words are, are a representation of something in material reality, but it takes it to the level of abstract thought. And it's also what allows us to do philosophy and religion, to do metaphor, to do poetry. All these things that animals simply are not capable of doing. They can teach animals, like very smart chimps, um, sign language. He can, a chimp can point to what it wants. That's not what language is. Uh, chimps are not going to have long uh, discussions with you about the nature of justice and whether or not we live in a just world. Um, but other human beings, even uh, a, a little kid who go, you send to bed because they misbehaved, they can have discussions with, about, <laughs> with you about an unjust world, um, something remarkably different uh, that any of the animals can do. But in that is rooted the human religious sense. You know, the, the, what Cheston says in The Everlasting Man is that the uniqueness of the creature called man um, is sets him apart from all the animals. And then the uniqueness of the man called Christ sets him apart uh, from all men. Why paying attention to Jesus Christ? So art is the, is the signature of the human person, Chesterton says. And if you think about art as being representational of something bigger than just this painting on the wall. it For these ancient people, it's these herds of animals that live out there. It's hunting these animals. It's a culture built around hunting. It's a way of talking about who you are as human beings. Well, what happens when God enters into that conversation? 
because Blombo's cave, the Lascaux cave drawings, so much of human history is chthonic. That's C-H-T-O-N-I-C, I think is the, the spelling. Um, chthonic gods are underground gods. And so uh, that plays a lively part in ancient mythology. They're Uranian gods, and they're the gods of the heavens, like uh, a Uranian god would be Uranus, uh, mating with Gaia, who's a New Age goddess, but really comes out of uh, Greek mythology, although she's completely twisted by modern New Age users of Gaia. But that the idea that the sky meets with and mates with the earth. But there are also Chthonic gods, um, like Vulcan would be a Chthonic god. Hades would be a, a Chthonic god. Um, Hell, who is in the... Um, in the Norse mythology, a Chthonic god, about the gods that live under the ground. Well, what Chesterton sees in the significance of these cave drawings is that human beings have some of their culture which really is more safe for them underground. Why? Because caves are a place where they can be protected from predators, probably one practical thing, but it also creates a sacred space. And so for Chesterton, as he talks about the everlasting man, how significant it is that Jesus is born in a cave in Bethlehem. I don't know if you've ever been to the church in the nativity in Bethlehem. I had one Christmas Eve when I was in the seminary. We had mass on the shepherd's hill across from Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. I'm just like, wow, what a singular event in my life. But I remember going down beneath the church to this, it looked like a crypt or a basement where they had the star, where by tradition Jesus was born. We, when we do nativity scenes, uh, don't we always have like this little stable and it's kind of neat? Because we always take the ancient world and we interpret it through European and American ways of understanding. But going back to the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem in Israel as to how the early Christians understood the birth of Jesus, Jesus is born underground. He'll die and he'll be buried underground. And from underground, the resurrection and the light come because it draws together the heavens and the earth. Jesus goes from heaven into the bowels of the earth. Jesus goes from heaven, from heaven into the depths of uh, even death and sin and human beings. And so for Chesterton, it is this image of this artistic God who talks to us in symbolism and invites us to connect with this whole understanding of this complete realm of the gods of paganism to see that there is just one God from heaven to the bowels of the earth. This is why Chesterton is so great. What happens to us? Well, we forget God. And uh, so we have these bouts where Christianity appears to die. How many times was it down and out? Have you ever thought how interesting it is that in the Reformation in the early 16th century, starting about 1519, 1521, where half the church, mostly Northern Europe, uh, parts of France, England, in its own tragic way, uh, parts of Germany, large parts of Germany, actually left communion um, with the Catholic Church. And at the same time, what happened? 
was that half the world came into the Catholic Church because of Spanish missionaries who went to South America and to North America. Um, and so that somehow as the church seems to be dying for Chesterton, it's rising again. And he said, this will be the history of the church. You feel like we're in a downtime, downtime right now, kind of this church, like for some people think it's an underground church. Friends, we've been here before. This is part of the growth of the gospel. And so the problem is, is for all the other people out there who don't share faith and how it is they follow from understanding this God, this everlasting man who bridges the gap between God and man through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then they start worshiping idols. Um, it could be industry, the world's richest man. I don't want to knock Elon Musk, but just the pursuit of riches in general. Or how about lust? worshiping sex, making sex the most important thing in the world? Have you noticed how it makes us drift away from one another and then ultimately drift away from the very meaning of being a human being? When you can separate sex and reproduction like uh, artificial means of contraception does or masturbation or other sins, grave sins, it says when you can separate those two things, then what is intrinsic about being a human being, being a male or a female? Why isn't it just sexual pleasure? Why isn't it just whatever floats my boat, to just put it in the common parlance? Christ reconnects us with being a human being because, because Christ became a male. So Chesterton says that the most ignorant of humanity know by the very look of earth that they've forgotten heaven because they can't make sense of what they see. Um, all these things will pass because they're just dead ends in human thought. But this idea of this paradox of this Christ that is born underground, who is destined to be underground when he is buried and then destined to be rose from the dead, rise from the dead and ascended to heaven. Chesterton says, a mass of legend and literature has sprung from the single paradox that the hands that made the sun and the stars were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle in that cave. Upon this paradox, all the literature of our faith was founded. It's something too good to be true, except that it is true. Then he talks about the Jesus who talked uh, to us in riddles and rebukes, uh, constantly like a lover trying to entice us to a deeper understanding of the mystery of God present in paradox. Um, people who want to try to get rid of the God-man of Jesus, try to make him merely human. In the past, they made a merely God who would only appear to be a human. It's the two ways it can err about Jesus. He's divine and is disconnected from human reality, or he's merely human and disconnected from divine reality. But why talk about all of this stuff? It's because that we're now at the end of the liturgical year closing in, and Jesus is talking about the end of time. And there's one aspect of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the world that I want you to think about uh, in terms of this paradox of human existence. So we're gonna take a moment and we're gonna turn to the gospel and we're gonna talk about the end of the world. So the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, 
Jesus has been teaching in the temple. It's the beginning of Holy Week. He's sitting on Mount Olivet, which is right across the Kidron Valley from the temple. We've had this story ever since we were kids, ever since you've been a Christian. And the, the gospel says, while some people were speaking about how the temple was adorned with costly stones and votive offerings, Jesus said, all that you see here, the days will come when there will not be left a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. You know, this uh, prophecy about the end of the temples in all four of the Gospels, uh, Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, was also a general in the Jewish army, uh, was, was a turncoat and, and uh, helped the Romans in the destruction of Jerusalem. He said that the temple, parts of the temple were covered in gold gilt. And so when the sun hit them, it just shone. Now, the thing about the temple, and I've spoken about it before, is that the temple was the image of uh, the cosmos. Um, a micro, a co the cosmos is all the world is that we understand. It's the land, it's the oceans, it's the animals, it's the plants, it's the stars in the sky. Uh, they, as they understood the cosmos, it was sphere within sphere within sphere, encased with the imperium where uh, God himself dwelt, and that the stars were divine beings or divine light shining through this final, uh, this final sphere. And so in the temple, you had all the elements of the cosmos. And so the temple was a microcosmos. It was a symbol of the entire created order. And so when Jesus is there and he's talking about the destruction of the temple, at some point he then uh, switches to basically this larger destruction um, that will be about uh, the entire cosmos, not just the temple. Because Jesus is really talking about two things that in the Jewish mind are directly related to the destruction of the temple, which is a macro or a microcosmos, and then the destruction of the cosmos, because those two things are connected. When one's destroyed, it's the sign that the other is going to be destroyed. And as you know, the Romans destroyed the Roman temp, uh, the Jewish temple um, right around the year 70. I hear different dates, but it, it happened in August. Um, the, the Jewish people still celebrate the destruction of the temple, which is that feast is at the end of July, beginning of August. Um, but it's interesting that I think in Matthew, um, it, it's, or Mark, it says, hope that it doesn't happen in the winter when you flee. So if these prophecies, the point is in Mark, if the prophecy about the destruction of the temple was from actually after the destruction of the temple, as some secularists say, because how could Jesus actually foretell the future? Um, why wouldn't Mark just say, hey, if it happens in the summer, make sure you take water, because that's when it actually happened. If it had been written just after the destruction of the temple, that, why wouldn't he have, and they're just making up, why wouldn't they have changed the prophecy? Because when Jesus says, pray, it doesn't happen in the winter, it didn't happen in the winter, it happened in August. Um, but Jesus puts all of this together in this understanding of cosmic time. So from the perspective of eternity, all of these things are happening together. We live in the end times. 
And so uh, it's interesting that part of all of this is how Jesus, if you remember his prophecy, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Uh, he's talking about the temple of his body according to all of the, the evangelists. And so for the baptized Christian, the temple in Jerusalem is no longer the microcosm of the cosmos. Think about yourself as a microcosm of the co cosmos. The cosmos in one very human package. All of mystery contained in you. Well, think about it. In you is material reality because you have a body. There's water and there's all the things that make up a material reality. In you is this vegetative part that grows, responds to the sun, needs nourishment. In you is this animal part um, that mates, that lives in community, does just what the animals do, which is what like people like H.G. Wells kinds of uh, uh, obsesses about or focuses solely on. But then there's also this spiritual part of you where you participate in the world of the angels. It's like last week when Jesus said uh, that we'll live like angels, that there is this uh, trajectory for the human person that is not simply about um, a physical evolution, but it's how it is that remade by God, we, his creation is restored, his cosmos is saved. So every human being becomes a temple where God is worshiped. And if you remember in the book of Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, has uh, 12 gates for the 12 apostles, 12 foundation stones for all the tribes of Israel, um, everything's there, God's there, the lamb is there, you're there, but there's no temple because the city itself and every human being in that city is the temple. And so when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the cosmos as is, it is a forerunner of what it means his own death, resurrection, and ascension will mean for every baptized Christian. So let's finish up this podcast by talking about the four last things or is it the six last things? Or is it the seven last things? Hang on, and I'll explain. So let's talk about the four last things. And in our tradition, we've said the four last things are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. But you know, they're the four last things from this perspective. Because you know, in Jesus' death, death died. Judgment happens only once, and then you're on. Heaven and hell are the two permanent states. But remember, there's actually a fifth last thing, which like death and judgment will pass, and it's purgatory. Um, the idea which is that even after death, God's grace operates on the soul that's open to him, to slowly purify him in this eternal state for life in heaven. So that means there's five last things, death, judgment, heaven, hell, and purgatory. Or are there in fact seven? Because the last things also are the resurrection, which is the general resurrection that we'll all experience. We have this understanding, and Pope Benedict talks about it, though it's always been a matter under discussion in Christianity, in Catholicism at least, 
that when we die, we're in this state without a body, but we're alive in God. Do you remember last week where Jesus said, I am, uh, Moses said, I am the God, you are the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, for all are alive in God. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive in God, although the resurrection hasn't happened. These are mysteries, but Christ doesn't seem to bat an eye that uh, people don't just go to sleep. That's what Martin Luther thought in the Reformation, that you were asleep and then at the general resurrection, everybody was uh, reunited with their bodies. But that has never been the Catholic faith um, because of what Jesus says in the gospel, making sense of everything he says, uh, that the general resurrection of the dead is something that happens at the end of time. And that's when the new creation begins. Um, you know, it's interesting when you think about G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man um, that uh, he talks about Asiatic religions that have uh, the understanding of reincarnation. But the understanding of reincarnation is you got to keep doing this world over and over and over and over and over again till you get it right. And it seems such a depressing way to think about what it means to be a human being. Um, but the, the, the idea that the world uh, will be remade um, uh, in union with God, the Christian understanding of the general resurrection and the new creation makes a lot more sense of what the Asiatic, uh, like Hinduism, Buddhism, and other Asian religions uh, tries to make sense of. Um, because what is important about Christianity is Jesus is the divinity, he is God made human and so it's god without mediator just talking to us it's not that jesus is between us and god jesus is the human face of god buddha uh muhammad um various uh personages in the vedas uh, this somehow is this echo of creation and god what the second vatican council would call um, little seeds of the truth that are in other religions that Christianity makes sense of. Uh, you know, Chesterton, when he thought about Christianity and why it is that Christianity is the religion that uh, explains all other religion and shows them the direction uh, for how to be united with the source of all life, he says that the strength of the world was turned to weakness and the wisdom of the world was turned to folly. Why? Here's what he said. That the stranger um, that was just this little Jesus guy from Nazareth, a nothing town, uh, was executed in a, this little nothing town called Jerusalem. It wasn't even Rome or in the Circus Maximus. He was considered to be a minor revolutionary that was just being discarded in this obscure outpost on the edge of this great Roman empire where the emperor supposedly designed. But that that simple little thing became the center of all history. Um, for people who don't see how it is that Christianity makes culture possible, that God creates us and in us is ver the very good but understanding revelation of God through Judaism gives us, in Christianity, gives us this understanding of what human life looks like, 
and how human beings are supposed to live, but still, it's not a self-help plan. It's not like New Age, where if you get these crystals, or if you just do these kinds of meditations, or if you um, just go to this spiritualist who will read your palms, read your aura, or talk to the dead, whatever it is, none of that can save you. Only God can rebuild us. And so that God came and in death was forsaken of God by his own sacrifice, which he offers to us in the Eucharist, which is that sacrament which makes the cross a sacrifice for the atonement of sins. And when you come to the Eucharist, you're participating in that atonement with the church and on behalf of the whole world. That those who object to this central dogma of the cross, they object, Justin says, not because it's bad, it's because they think it's too big, too good to be true. I think he's being very generous with humanity. I think there are people that just don't want it to be true. They think that God can be nothing but their competitor because there are people that their religion is, they make up their own religion. They become their own God. They call all the shots. And what they say happens, this is what reality is. We're all dealing with this in America. That's why this story about the end of the world is so great. Um, I like to close with a poem uh, because Jesus sits and he talks about the end of the world and says, this is not something you can think, think your way through. This is just happening. But this was a great poem by a Catholic who was really persecuted by uh, King, Queen Elizabeth and became an Episcopalian, then became an Episcopal priest. But he talked about one of the last things in a poem that he wrote uh, that's entitled Death Be Not Proud. It's a holy sonnet, really. And the poet's name is John Donne, and this was written in the early 16th century. Death be not proud, though some have called thee, mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go. Rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dust with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppier charms can make us sleep as well. As we, and better than thy stroke, why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Only a Christian could write that poem. This has been Oro Valley Catholic. Hope you listen and give me a like if you can. <laughs>